Welcome to Basic Brewing Radio for Thursday, October 27th. I'm James Spencer. Here at Basic Brewing Radio, we're all about home brewing, making beer at home. Well, this week we start our three-part series based on our interview with Dave Logston of Y-East. Dave was so helpful and informative, and he spent so much time with us, I've decided to spread the interview out over three shows. Well, today we begin our chat by getting into some background on Dave and Y-East, and we talk a bit about how yeast works in fermentation. Also, Dave weighs in on the debate on whether to rack or not to rack to a secondary fermenter. But first, a quick peek into the mailbag. Aaron from Whittier, California writes in to say that he loves the show and that he stumbled on it. And uh, because of the show, he decided to take up the hobby of homebrewing. Well, that's great. We've got a, got a convert there in California. So far, Aaron has brewed a brown ale, and he says a wheat beer is in the fermenter. So he's, he's getting a running start. Aaron wanted to comment on my remark that uh, most women, at least the women that I know, don't like bitter beers with lots of hops. Aaron says his wife is an exception to the rule. He says she doesn't like beer as a general rule, but she tasted a Stone Brewing Company's Ruination IPA and loved it. Aaron says he certainly didn't plan to win over his wife with a uh, double IPA, but it looks like he'll be sharing from here on out. Well, congratulations, Aaron. I guess. It it sounds like your store-bought beer budget just went up, though. Ted from Cape Cod writes in after hearing last week's show on kegging. Ted says Blickman, I believe it's Blickman, B-L-I-C-H-M-A-N-N, makes a beer gun that is supposed to be much easier to use than a counter-pressure bottle filler to a bottle from a keg. Uh, thanks for that heads up, Ted. Martin from Brisbane, Australia, says, thanks for the inspiration. Martin says he started brewing about 10 years ago, but when his kids came along, he got out of the habit. He says, after listening to the podcast on the train on the way to work, he's inspired to take it back up again and brew more than just the dump and stir kits, he says. Well, thanks, Martin. I'm glad we're able to reignite the brewing spark down there. It's tough when the kids come along uh, to brew and not feel guilty. I know I went through a dry period when our boys came along, but now they're five and eight, and uh, I'm back into the swing of things now. Uh, if I do feel guilty, I can say that, uh, you know, it's kind of like golf and that I'm spending all day doing it, and drinking beer, by the way, but at least I'm at home, you know, on the patio. There's nothing against golfing, by the way, but I found that I'm, uh, I'm better with a chiller than a putter. Now, here's an interesting one. Todd from Phoenix writes in to say one of his early exposures to home brewing was through a television cooking show. He says during their episode on brewing, the host advised cooling the wort rapidly by putting a seven-pound bag of ice in the fermenter and pouring the hot wort on top of it. And I'm paraphrasing Todd's question here, by the way. Todd asks if I would see any problem with this technique. Would the sudden cold tamper with the flavors? And is there a sanitation issue? Well, it, it's strange that Todd wrote that email when he did. On the day I got Todd's email, my friend John was visiting from out of town, and I was showing him how to brew. He had, he had seen the same show. In fact, it was an episode of Good Eats with Alton Brown. Coincidentally, John brought a tape of the show, and I watched it for the first time with him while we were waiting for the, the, the mash to, to, to mash. First, let me say that I love the Good Eats show. And I think Alton does a fantastic job of being geeky and entertaining about food at the same time. Lots of science and good information delivered in a fun way. However, 
there were some things that Alton did in his homebrewing show that I did take issue with, and I just want to point them out. I, I don't think I'm being picky, and I just want to make sure that, uh, that somebody starting out in homebrewing just gets off on the right foot. Now, first of all, on the chilling with a bag of ice, I don't think there's a problem with the rapid chilling, but I personally would be concerned about sanitation. I've been to a facility locally where they warehouse bagged ice for retail, and it was a pretty dusty and dirty place, frankly. I'd be concerned that some of the stuff, even from the outside of the bag, would fall into the fermenter and infect the beer. I'd use the ice to make an ice bath to chill the brew pot from the outside if you didn't have a chiller. Now, you know, there may be some differing opinions on that, um, but there were some other things that I saw on the show that would probably get more agreement out there. First of all, Alton sanitized with a bleach solution, but then didn't tell us to rinse thoroughly afterwards. You need to rinse well after sanitizing with bleach. He essentially did a mini-mash, bringing his grain to 150 degrees and holding it for 30 minutes in the water, uh, but he was using crystal malt, which, according to Ray Daniels in Designing Great Beers, has no enzymes and wouldn't convert any starches to sugar by mashing, so it wouldn't benefit by that, that mash rest. He could have uh, gotten the same effect by steeping the grain in a grain bag while his pot was heating up. He'd get the good flavors from the crystal malt since he was making an extract beer. He would get the, the good flavors from the grain by, by heating them up in a, in a grain bag in the water. Now, he left the grain in the wort while he boiled. Now, taking the grain above 170 degrees begins a process where tannins are drawn out of the husks, causing an astringent off flavor. Again, using a grain bag, it would have been really easy to take those out. I'm not sure he boiled the bittering hops for a full 60 minutes, but I'm not sure about that. He added his aroma hops the last five minutes, which is a good thing, but he called this dry hopping, which is technically incorrect. Dry hopping is where you add hops into the secondary fermenter to get the hop aroma. He didn't aerate his wort before pitching the yeast. A good shake of the bucket three or four minutes is necessary to give the yeast the oxygen it needs. Uh, all the oxygen in the water is boiled out during the boil. And we talk extensively with Dave Logston about aeration, both the shaking method and um, using uh, oxygen introduced into the into the wort. He and finally he pitched the yeast at 87 degrees. Now I I don't pitch above 80 degrees, although the graphic on the show said the best temperature uh, pitching temperature is 70 degrees. So there. Uh, and I, again, I don't want to sound too picky or whiny. And uh, I am a fan of Elton, and I think it's uh, hard to explain the brewing process well in 20 or 30 minutes. Overall, I think he did a good job, but I see my role as uh, sweating the details and getting, uh, making sure things are made clear. Uh, you know, everybody has a different way of doing things, but the things that I pointed out, I think, are sort of no-nos that I believe most home brewers would probably agree on. So there, enough, enough Alton Brown bashing. Now, one more thing before we get to Dave. I have an interview scheduled with John Palmer for the evening of November 7th. I know that some of you uh, expressed interest in, in hearing from John. If you have a question uh, you want to ask John about uh, all-grain brewing, which is going to be our topic, please send those to james at basicbrewing.com or just use the contact form on basicbrewing.com. And again, please, uh, please don't forget to tell us where you're from. Now... 
on to our interview with Dave Logston of Y-East to talk about our favorite microorganisms. Well, first of all, let's talk about a bit about your background. How does a guy get to be uh, the head of uh, one of the, the major yeast production companies in the country? Well, James, I started out as a beer drinker in a very young age, uh, growing up in the Midwest in, uh, in a German farming community, and it was a big part of our uh, our life in, in celebration of weddings and, and uh graduations and all the such and so having that uh beer background so to speak i uh continued on as i left the midwest and came to the west coast uh, where we live now i uh, found that the beers that uh, i grew up with were uh, not available or much lighter in profile and now i'm getting back to the uh to the uh mid early and mid 70s here and and uh when i was going to school i um couldn't really afford the imports, and there wasn't that much of an import uh, uh, selection available anyway. And, and so I started home brewing, and that's where I uh, got my interest in, in yeast and uh, fermentation cultures. Uh, when I was in college, I studied uh, food science technology, and I worked in the uh, school laboratory where we uh, maintained the, uh, the bacteria and, and uh, other uh, yeast cultures as well uh, for the school and for our uh, projects and laboratories, so I had a little bit of familiarity there, and I got a hold of some good brewing yeast, and I found that it made my beers taste much better, so I got uh, involved in maintaining yeast cultures, and the timing uh, at that point was the early 80s, and there was a number of uh, like-minded people in the Portland, Oregon area where I was at that uh, were brewing and wanting to to potentially open up microbreweries, or we really didn't know what we were we were trying to do at that point, but uh, uh, we helped them out in getting their yeast going for for some of the breweries. And shortly after that, I worked on designing the packaging that we use for our activator package today, so we could proof our yeast and make sure that it was live and ready for brewers to use whenever uh, they were going to do some home brewing. So we worked with the small breweries in the area and uh, got home brewing gone with uh, liquid yeast cultures and just kind of kept going from there. Now, where, where did you get your, your yeast strains from then, and, and where do you get them now? Well, the yeast strains come from all over. That's really an interesting question, James, because uh, the very first one I think I got was from a guy named Dave Wills. Uh, he, uh, you may know him or be familiar with him. I'm sure a number of the, uh, the listeners may be because he was uh, involved with uh, fresh hops, in uh, Corvallis, Oregon, and he was uh, a home brewer as well, and he had a, a yeast culture. He actually pulled it out of his shirt pocket at one little uh, beer event we were at, and he said, uh, I've got this yeast. I don't know what to do with it, but I'm sure you do. So he handed it over to me, and I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, they call it the AB yeast. And I said, AB, hmm, because, yeah, it means amateur brewer or something to that effect. So. Hmm. We uh, didn't really know for sure where it was from, but we had some ideas, and, and uh, I started brewing with that and found it to be a very nice lager yeast, and uh, that was, uh, I think, the very first strain I had, I had gotten. I think shortly after that, uh, traveling to Boulder and going to some of their very early uh, AHA conferences, I managed to come across a, f- a few people that also had yeast strains that they had uh, accumulated from uh, 
different parts of the world, and, and they were handing them over to me left and right. And I started a library of these strains, and we would we would uh, test them by uh, brewing some beer and seeing what their performance and flavor characteristics were and get any background information we could on them and uh, continued to maintain these yeast over the years and the idea that, well, we've got a business here and, and we got the fledging thing up and gone in about the mid-80s uh, at that point. And what happened was more and more people heard about our yeast and, and started buying our yeast, and uh, we would get people that would just send yeast from all over the world that they had acquired from a brewery or had gotten from uh, one source or another. And by now we have hundreds of yeast strains that we've uh, gotten just by... Uh, that type of uh, serendipity, but also going out and traveling the world and, and meeting brewers and getting yeast strains that they were willing to share with us. And, and uh, that's how we continue to build our, our library and make it a nice broad profile of, of, uh, of various yeast strains. So do you still have yeast strains in your, in your library, so to speak, that uh, are from the early days? Oh, we certainly do. Yeah, we the very first ones, the AB strain and, and a number of others, uh, We've uh, continued to maintain over the years, and that's that's our job, maintaining those flavor and fermentation characteristics that each individual strain has that make them unique. Now, give us a, a broad overview. We can't, you know, we can't uh, for time's sake. We can't get into the the details of how you do it. But what, how, in a broad overview, do you manage to keep these yeast strains going over the years? Well, yeah, there's two things uh, about uh, maintaining yeast cultures that have always kept us to the fundamentals, and, and that is uh, you need to keep it alive and you need to keep it pure. So those two things are what we focus on. And by uh, keeping them alive, we feed them on an ongoing basis and we keep them in a dormant uh, state uh, between culturing. So that's, that's done uh, by a couple, couple different methods in the lab that we use. And then uh, keeping them pure is uh, maintaining an aseptic environment in our laboratory. We've got a nice state-of-the-art facility that we use to uh, reculture these yeast on an ongoing basis. And when we do reculture them, we test them for purity, we test them for their viability, we test them for their fermentation characteristics and document what we've had done over the past 20-some years now uh, to make sure that the strain has those same characteristics and that it has not mutated or changed in a way that uh, loses some of its uh, unique properties. We, we look for, very importantly, is flavor, ester profile. Those characteristics are very key for uh, for brewing yeast. Then we also how they attenuate. How do they flocculate? And uh, we take all that information along with a few other uh, analytical uh, uh, bits that we um, perform with our um, ongoing culturing and we document that year in and year out and as we grow up our yeast cultures on a weekly basis we uh, uh, always go back and check the reference to make sure the profiles are consistent. And talk a bit about you you mentioned uh, attenuation and flocculation. Uh, define those terms for oh, us. Oh those are good terms they, they get kind of beat up quite a bit but uh, attenuation is oftentimes uh, also considered apparent attenuation. Let me give you an example, James. If uh, we are making a beer that uh, has an original specific gravity of 1.048, which also equates to about 12 degrees Plato if you're using that scale. 
that beer, after fermentation, goes down and finishes at a terminal gravity of 1.012, or about 3 degrees Plato, what you would have there is about 75% attenuation. That would be an apparent attenuation. Uh, the real attenuation is skewed because of the alcohol that's produced during the fermentation process. So it's actually a little bit, the actual attenuation is a little higher. It gives you that uh, reference point, and that's why it's used so it's a, a common language that all brewers can use, an apparent attenuation level. Different yeast strains attenuate differently. They Some will ferment more sugars than others will, and uh, that's what gives you that value. And so so a yeast strain with a higher apparent attenuation would give you a drier uh, tasting beer? Exactly, yeah. The, another yeast strain in that same, uh, same wort might ferment down to 1010, for example. So 1.010 instead of 1.012. That's another uh, 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 half a degree Play-Doh or then about another, um, uh, almost another half percent alcohol. So, yeah, it's definitely going to give you different mouthfeel and definitely a different perception of sweetness of the beer and the finish. Now, what about flocculation? Flocculation is the term that's used uh, to uh, describe how yeast settle out or aggregate after fermentation is complete. The, uh, some yeast are very powdery and, and, and almost dusty, they, and those tend to be uh, more tenured of yeast, in fact, and whereas more flocculent yeast uh, will tend to aggregate together and fall in more, more, large, more large clumps at the end of fermentation, and the beers tend to be very much brighter. Uh, a good example is a, is a ESB yeast that are used in British-style ales, uh, they they tend to fall very bright very quickly and and without even filtration they can uh, uh, be served uh, nearly yeast free, so that that flocculation characteristic is important for both uh, mouthfeel, body, uh, uh, flavor, uh, sweetness, and uh, just how easy it is to handle the beer after uh, the fermentation is completed, and uh, the flocculation is kind of triggered by the uh, reduction of sugar during the fermentation and the increase in alcohol as the uh, fermentation is near finished that kind of triggers the yeast to, to flock and, and uh, precipitate out of the beer. Can you go through how a yeast works in fermentation? Say you, you pitch the yeast into your wort and you know kind of take us a tour uh, along on a tour uh, of what the yeast does during during fermentation. Well, what the yeast does is the yeast uh, assimilates the uh, the sugars in the wort and as well as the uh, nitrogen compounds and amino acids that are available in, in the wort as well. Those are all nutrients that the uh, the yeast need to uh, survive. So these uh, yeast uh, metabolize the sugars. They take them up through their cell walls. Uh, they um, convert those sugars into essentially alcohol and carbon dioxide and esters and flavor compounds. So if you, for every pound of sugar that a, a, that a yeast population would take up in the word, they would produce about a half a pound of uh, carbon dioxide and about a half a pound of alcohol. They convert that into those two compounds, they excrete it back out of the cells and uh, in, into the into the word, or which then becomes beer. So it's it's that efficient. It's it's about half and half. Yeah, it is very efficient. There's the, the zesters and and flavor compounds that are also developed, and some other trace compounds, uh, things like diacetyl and some sulfur compounds. But those are all quite minute. You, you could take a uh, 
a flask of fermenting yeast and set it on a uh, on a scale, for example, and and watch the um, weight drop as the fermentation went on as the CO2 came off. Wow, that's pretty neat. Now, talk about the, uh, we have uh, in fermentation. There's the primary stage, and then there's the secondary stage, right? What happens different? What does the yeast do differently in, in those two well, stages? That, that's a good question, James. That's that's a term that kind of comes out of British brewing, and and it's used somewhat in in, in lager fermentations as well. Uh, I think that um, in home brewing today it's probably less of a issue than uh, a lot of people tend to read into it. Uh, let me give you some examples. Uh, ale fermentations uh, oftentimes start out ferment down to say uh, from a say a 1055 original gravity down to say 10, 18 or 1020. Slow down or nearly stop. There's a reason for that happening and that's that primary fermentation. Uh, it, they also could ferment all the way down to near 1.012 to 1.014 and be nearly completely fermented as well. But then they'd be racked from that primary fermentation. The racked is siphoning the beer off of the solids that have settled on the bottom that we want to get that, that uh, fresh beer away from and put into a secondary vessel, a new clean vessel that... Uh, would actually uh, arouse a secondary fermentation just from the agitation and the uh, movement of the beer that would, in some aeration that's picked up along the way, would actually set off a secondary fermentation and go to complete terminal gravity. So it was, I think in ale brewing, it was more out of a necessity uh, than design that we ended up with a secondary fermentation. And uh, with a good, healthy primary fermentation, Secondary fermentation really is more of just a conditioning or a maturation of the beer as it settles, uh, reducing diacetyl and uh, developing uh, and ripening, so to speak. So that's that's one area of primary and secondary fermentation when when you consider ales. Uh, lager fermentations are somewhat similar in that uh, starting in that primary fermentation, most of the sugars are fermented out. Uh, most a lot of lager yeast will stop uh, about uh, uh, half a degree Plato or uh, uh, say point oh one four to oh one six and not be completely fermented but slow down to a very slow state. Then they would be racked into a uh, secondary or what they call lagering uh, vessel, and that final fermentation would uh, continue. And then in lager beers, it's normally done right at or near 32 degrees or quite cold, the refrigerator temperatures that give that l- slow fermentation to uh, to finish out and dry the beer out a little bit more in that uh, conditioning state. So it's it's more of a conditioning time and uh, uh, final uh, residual fermentation occurs and then uh, the beer can uh, settle there and, and mature similar to what an ale does. Uh, one of the interesting things about secondary fermentations or conditioning times uh, the warmer it's done, the quicker it happens. Ales ripen much more quickly than lagers do. Cold temperatures uh, slow that process and produce a finer, drier profile, uh, much uh, uh, due to the lager yeast themselves and the fermentation characteristics they have. But that's that maturing period that's occurring uh, it would, in what we may call secondary. Now, you kind of touched on, on uh, you know, some one of the... 
uh, one of the controversies out there in, in home brewing, uh, and that is to rack or not to rack. You know, do you do you just keep your beer on the uh, on the primary in the primary fermenter until it's time to uh, you know to bottle, or do you rack into a secondary fermenter uh, for a kind of a clarification or a clarifying stage uh, before you go to the bottling? Uh, and you know, that's in some areas that's a hotly contested uh, question. It is. You're right, and that is a very good question. So, so a, what's the answer? About it. <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll put in my two cents worth. I've done a lot of brewing besides uh, besides uh, managing a, a yeast laboratory. The things that I find that affect beer adversely more than anything else by home brewers or even commercial brewers to a lot of extent is the more you handle the beer, the more likely you are to oxidize it. Oxidation is one of the biggest uh, uh, detriments to a well-made beer once it's once it's gotten to the point uh, through fermentation. Everything has to be done uh, as uh, well as possible to keep that in a uh, environment that is going to minimize that oxidation problem. Now, I've, I was over in uh, uh, Sweden earlier this year at uh, the home brewers uh, competition. They're judging beers, and I got to... Uh, speak with a couple of the brewers that uh, took an awful lot of metals, and I was quite impressed with their beers as well. And uh, one of the things they told me is that we do, you know, we get the yeast count right initially, which is important to get that terminal gravity in your primary fermentation in a in a timely manner to get a good, clean, healthy fermentation, good aeration, good, good uh, pitching rates. And then we rack, we just, we let the beer settle till it's relatively bright not too much time, and we rack right into our bottles and bottle right then, and and uh, we our beers stay fresher and more flavorful by not going into a secondary and uh, putting up with the potential consequences of that that additional handling. So my uh, take on it, not only from them but from other things we've done uh, uh, here, we do a lot of uh, test brewing as well in the laboratory. Uh, find that uh, handling it less, going through primary, and just uh, getting it in a package. And if you're not bottling, going right into a uh, your Cornelius can or your keg and uh, purging that first with uh, CO2 to make sure that there's uh, no air there. And just get it in there and let it rest. Keep it quiet as possible. Handle it as little as possible. I uh, think your beers are going to taste better, taste fresher, and last longer uh, once they're packaged as well. Now, what's what's their method of uh, of priming? Uh, before going into the bottle, do they rack into a say a bottling bucket and, and no, no, prime not there, even. Go, they'll they'll prime right in the bottle. That's really? How typically I um, I uh, bottle my beers if I'm going to do priming is those really convenient uh, uh, tablets that are available now from a couple different suppliers make it easy just to drop a tablet in a bottle and and go. But uh, even if you just make up a sugar solution and and uh, dose it into the bottles. Uh, you can you can do it very effectively without uh, having to mix in sugar uh, into another container. Again, that's that's at a point where you really don't want to be stirring up the beer anyway, uh, because again, oxidation is what you're going to create more so than anything else. Uh, even though uh, re-fermentation in the bottle is an excellent way to minimize oxidation, also it's not going to completely keep it from uh, occurring. So, again, the less you can handle it, the better your beer is going to be. No, I've I've always heard and. And uh, as I talked to you in our conversations before this interview, you know, 
uh, one of the goals of this podcast is to kind of uh, dispel some of the myths out there. But I've I've heard one of the stories that you you know you prime with three quarters cup of corn sugar, or however you do it with a light dry malt extract, and all in one batch is to avoid the bottle bombs, you know. And and the story goes that uh, the reason that uh, people's beers exploded so much in the old days is because they they you know they they primed each bottle rather than priming the batch. But what you're saying kind of goes against that. Well, I've seen a couple of uh, situations that would uh, would kind of support my argument. One is that uh, if you make a, uh, a sugar solution or if you stir sugar into a, um, a batch, the tendency is, unless you really get it agitated well to get it to fully dissolve, is for that sugar to lay down on the bottom of the, of the uh, vessel. Mm-hmm. And so you get it, you don't have an homogenous uh, solution as easily as if you just dosed each bottle with the appropriate amount. So it takes takes a little bit of uh, you know math or, or science to figure out how many uh, how much just is a half teaspoon is it a three quarter teaspoon or you know, if I'm using dextrose or malt extract uh, to figure out how much it is uh, that I should be adding to each bottle. But uh, I think you keep your consistency bottle to bottle better that way than you would be by um, potentially having stratification within the vessel itself. I, I think uh, James more common uh, bottles exploding is because they didn't get an, uh, an adequate terminal gravity during their primary or secondary fermentation, and there was more residual fermentables in it than what they anticipated. And then when they primed, they added uh, an additional amount of sugar, which took it over the top for suitable amount of carbonation. I think that's where those problems occurred more so than than uh, variations in in, uh, in bottling itself. So, so they might have had bottle bombs whether they'd primed or not, if if they hadn't well, finished yeah, the exactly. fermentation. If you're, if you're three, it takes about uh, uh, 0.004 specific gravity increase to get a pretty decent carbonation of around uh, two and a half volumes of CO2 thereabouts. Uh, so, if you have a say, you have a terminal gravity of 1.016 in your beer, and it really should have went down to 1.012, and you've got that difference in fermentable still in there, you've got your priming sugar already there. But that's a difficult thing to measure for home brewers. So mm-hmm. you prime as you normally would, and then either you're going to get um, uh, over-carbonation, over or if you had the terminal gravity where it was actually fixed in the, uh, in the fermenter before you bottled, then you have a, a, an accurate amount of dosing. But that's, that's, that's difficult. That's not easy... Uh, to do. The main thing is to stay away from that problem to begin with. And, and we could talk a lot about uh, uh, how to make sure you're going to get the uh, uh, fermentation that's healthy and complete in the primary. One of the things you also hear is that you want to get the beer away from the trube and the, uh, you know, the, the dormant and dead yeast bodies in the bottom of the fr- primary fermenter within a certain amount of time, or you start getting off flavors from decomposition or whatever from that. Talk about that. What's your opinion on, on that? Well, that, that, that's uh, very true. You do want to get that off of the, um, off of the primary in a, in a timely manner. Now, um, if I were um, going to be brewing a batch of beer in five-gallon uh, carboy, I would hopefully pitch the right amount of yeast and aerate it well enough so that I had a uh, complete fermentation in five or six days. I like that fermentation length for m- most beers of uh, average gravity. 
after uh, six days and terminal gravity is reached, I'm going to let it set for about three days just to condition and, and diacetyl rest and yeast settling in that. And at that point, you're uh, into about day maybe 10. I would, uh, if I were, and same thing we do at our brewery, I would uh, cool that beer down. I'd stick it in a refrigerator and let it set for about another three or four days to get it to brighten a little bit more. At that point, about day 12, day 14, I want to have that beer pulled off of that uh, that primary fermentation. That's that's as long as I want to be out there. So about uh, two weeks. Even, even a little shorter might even be better, but that's right in the range where I want to be. I want to get it, get it pulled pretty quickly at that point. And if if you're doing a lager fermentation, you're out about 12 to 15 days uh, 12 days you should have fermentation complete and then uh, a little bit of time for settling. You won't get near as much yeast settling on a lager most often than you do on an ale, but you want to get that, allow that tube to settle a little bit and then uh, be racking into that uh, that, uh, lagering tank or or going into bottles if if it's appropriate at that time. But um, about two weeks is about as long as you want to be on that primary at at any situation. Is that because of uh, is it autolysis or what? What is the uh... that's that's the right term, James, for uh, for yeast uh, uh, decomposition is autolysis. It's, uh, yeast is autolyzing and and dying at those warmer temperatures uh, of uh, primary fermentation, and they um, can give uh, off flavors, uh, uh, sulfur notes. Uh, they also uh, um, are detrimental to the head retention on your beer over time. And uh, the amount of how much tube actually came over from the kettle into the fermenter is a is a big factor as well because the uh, the decomposition of tube is also uh, a significant off flavor and you see that even in bottle conditioned beers whether they're commercial or home brewing if there's an awful lot of tube uh, in the bottom of the bottle along with the yeast it tends to get very sluffy and and come up easily off the bottom and it, and you can actually see it start to gray over time as it. Uh, as it uh, breaks down. So those are things that uh, take away from clean-tasting beer. Well, next week we continue our interview with Dave Logston of Y-East as we get into the questions that you, our listeners, sent in. Lots more great information coming next time. And thanks once again to Dave for helping us out. If you have brewing questions, show suggestions, or just want to say hey, write to james at basicbrewing.com or just fill out the contact form on basicbrewing.com. Please don't forget to tell us where you're from. And if you're wanting to get into home brewing while you're on our site, you can check out our DVD, Basic Brewing Introduction to Extract Home Brewing. We'll walk you through the process step by step. You can see a listing of the fine folks across the country who sell our DVD, and if there isn't a vendor in your area, you can order it online on our site. Well, that's all until next week. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm James Spencer. Production help for Basic Brewing Radio and our website is provided by Kelly Dodson. Basic Brewing Radio is a production of Active Voicing. We'll talk to you next time. So long.